Cicely Saunders. Um, and I have a lot of admiration for this woman because she was an RN turned uh, social worker, turned physician, turned writer. So she was all up in this. Um, and she was a very strong proponent of palliative care, which is palliative is the step before hospice. So in the home health continuum, we have home health, which is you're still going to the doctor, you're still seeing people, you're still having your appointments, we're still providing aggressive treatments for what's going on. Palliative care focuses more on symptom management in terms of making sure that people are comfortable. Um, some people are still at that point, the most tangible example is cancer. There are some people who will take what's called palliative chemotherapy, which is basically something that will buy them a little bit more time. Um, and it's more about making sure that people are comfortable. Hospice is we are no longer doing aggressive treatments. Um, we are not trying to stop the illness. We are allowing a natural death to occur. Um, now that doesn't mean that we don't treat, like say if somebody gets a UTI, which is very common in the older population, um, that's not to say that we won't treat that and they'll die of sepsis, we don't do that. It's more of we're no longer treating the primary cause. Um, and so hospice in America didn't actually start until 1974. That was when the first hospice was opened in America. Um, and I believe it was opened in Connecticut. Now, hospice was not covered under Medicare until the Reagan administration. And my mom and I were actually having a conversation about this this morning because she works in human resources and does healthcare in that way. And I forget which one it was, but when hospice benefit first emerged um, under the federal government, it actually was only partially covered. Um, so they would cover, I believe they would cover the nursing visits, but they would not cover end of life medications, which is typically morphine, a lot of things, what we think about fentanyl now for more pain management. Um, and it actually wasn't until Bill Clinton was in office and he had his healthcare reform that all of hospice was covered under the Medicare benefit. Um, so it wasn't until the 90s. So even though the first hospice was started in 74, it wasn't until the early to mid 90s that hospice was actually something that everybody could get access to under Medicare. Um, and that's something that a lot of people don't know about. And part of the reason why I wanted to start in hospice is because a lot of the, the many different concepts of grief are rooted around mourning and loss. And so the man who actually coined the phrase disenfranchised grief um, was a fellow by the name of um, Ken Doka. And he's, he actually published a book in 1989 called Disenfranchised Grief. Um, and when this originally came out, it was not necessarily in the context of the massive civil unrest that we're seeing right now. Um, disenfranchised grief at its core, he actually defines it as uh, a grief that a person experiences when they incur a loss that is not or cannot be openly acknowledged, socially sanctioned, or publicly mourned. That's a really big umbrella. Um, that opens up a lot of things uh, because when we think about in our own typical American grieving process, we're allowed to mourn you know, immediate blood family members, and that's it. Uh, we don't think about the different kinds of losses that we can experience. Um, yeah. You know, some more, for me, personal things that would, would qualify under disenfranchised grief. Um, and so I'm transgender, and my transition actually was a huge period of grief and mourning, not just for me, but also for my family as well. But because I didn't actually die, um, that mourning and that grief was something that a lot of my family members were told to either get over, ignore, whatever. Um, I had to mourn the loss of being in queer female spaces, and now I'm just, you know, another white guy in a white t-shirt that's going bald. Um, I, I had to lose, you know, that, that, those senses of identity. I had to mourn those losses, but those are not things that are societally seen as something worth mourning. Um, there's not that social sanction or that social acceptance. And when we look at the civil unrest that we're seeing today, 
this is another form of disenfranchised grief. And, and as I've said in similar posts, I really believe that disenfranchised grief is really just invalidated grief. Um, it's us making a judgment call on what we're comfortable with around mourning, which anybody who has got any kind of up on American culture knows that we're not really down for, for, grie for grieving or for mourning. Um, and I always make the distinction between grief and mourning because grief is the emotion and mourning is the process. So I would very much argue that America is a country full of grief for so many different reasons, uh, but we don't have mourning rituals. And because we are less church than we've ever been, and to flag it, this is not me saying that people need Jesus and to go to church. This is not where I'm headed with that. Um, the reality is that a lot of our mourning practices are rooted in spiritual and religious practices. But as we have had this schism kind of emerge between spirituality, religion, and mourning practices, we don't really have a lot of non-secular mourning processes. Um, so people are just left to contend with their grief and sit with it. Um, disenfranchised grief can also look like invalidated grief in terms of being told, no, you're not supposed to be upset about this. This isn't something worth being upset about. Or you've been upset about this for too long. Okay. And, and really, that's just other people saying, your grief makes me uncomfortable, and I need you to stop. So if we look at this in the context of the Black Lives Matter movement, and we look at this in terms of basically, I wouldn't call it the new civil rights movement because this has been happening for a while. It's just at a fever pitch where white America is kind of waking up a little bit, is that we're looking at marginalized groups of people who for hundreds and hundreds of years have been systematically disenfranchised economically, politically, um, and now in terms of just acknowledgement of death and loss. Um, we're told that you're not allowed to mourn your loved ones who are killed by police brutality. You're not allowed to mourn your loved ones that are killed by systemic racism because we as white people, as, as the dominant group, don't find that palatable, we don't find it socially sanctioned, and we don't find it reasonable. Um, and, and a lot of the conversations I have to have with people are, Imagine that you're told that the deep loss that you feel isn't real. You're basically being gaslit. You're being told, oh, I, I, I'm so sorry. Uh, you need to get over it. Like the, the fact that we only have three days of bereavement and that only qualifies for blood relatives in typical like working white collar environments. Yeah. Anybody can tell you 72 hours is not long enough to cope with the death. It's not. Um, and we also look at losses beyond, you know, just mortal death. I mean, losing jobs, losing children, losing relationships, losing pets, uh, as mine is snoofing around right now. I mean, th these are all losses that we have. But for whatever reason, we've only parsed it out to people that you are biologically related to, you're allowed to mourn. And even then you're given like three days to a week, and then you're just expected to be over it. Yeah. Um, and, and that's not realistic at all. And I think for me, it ties back to these larger capitalistic notions of productivity, work, you're not allowed to be a human, you need to keep working, you need to keep showing up, you need to keep doing this stuff, regardless of what the emotional cost is. Mm -hmm. And we wonder why there's such a pervasive mental health issue in this country, and it's because all we do is, like, oppress, object, and deny. We're like, nope, over there, just, nope, come back to work, don't be sad, yeah. forget it. Yeah. Yeah. Very, very interesting. Did you want to say something, Joel? No, I was going to say that. Thank you, because that was a very thorough explanation. Because I really, I wasn't even aware, really, of what, like, I've heard it before, mm -hmm. but I didn't really know 
what disenfranchised grief really was at the core. Mm -hmm. So thank you for that. And it makes a lot of sense as well with, um, you know, I guess what's going on with the Black Lives Matter community. And um, I just, I think it's, it's, it needs to be talked about more because I don't even remember learning about this in graduate school because I did have a grief and loss class, but it wasn't, it was very broad and general and like grief isn't linear, but this wasn't really discussed as. Yeah. Disenfranchised grief. That's a relatively new term. Like the guy who coined it is still alive, right? Mm -hmm. Yep. No. And he's published. Good. I was looking at his CV before uh, I hopped on and he's published close to, or been a part of at least 40 different book publications. He's got a gajillion articles. I mean, he got his master of divinity. He's also got a PhD. Um, he's been writing since the seventies, essentially about all of this. And so a lot of his work is, is rooted in hospice and um, grief and mourning and loss in that way. He also looks at adolescent grief. Um, he looks actually, he was one of the few people that was looking at disenfranchised grief around losses during the HIV AIDS pandemic and that was going on um, during the, the Reagan administration because that was a stigmatized death. And that's another aspect of disenfranchised grief is that if a death has been stigmatized, right, right. that means dying from you know some kind of socially uncouth disease like HIV back in the 80s. Um, or if somebody dies by suicide, that's seen as a stigmatized death. So things that carry weight, that carry stigma. I mean, death is not a particularly palatable subject in the first place, but yeah. if you add that extra layer of discomfort, whether it's you know a religious upbringing, a, a moral or value upbringing, or just whatever your family culture is, because that varies from family to family depending on you know your heritage, where you come from, what your own family culture is, the, the culture you've inherited, if there's intergenerational trauma around these things, there's a lot of moving pieces around it. And so for him, a lot of his work actually came from like people who were typically the adult caregivers of uh, adult children caregivers for parents who were dealing with Alzheimer's and dementia. And this is actually something I saw in my hospice and home health work a lot is that people feel extraordinarily guilty when they have feelings of, you know, I wish my loved one would die. And it's not coming from a place of maliciousness, like, oh my God, I hate this person and they've been terrible. Like, and that's not to say that that doesn't exist because there are a handful of people, but by and large, people aren't allowed to mourn the loss of the life that they had as they have to move into taking care of their parents, which we can flip that. And when there are new parents and they have babies that are being born, as a, an American ritual, we don't really have a, a passage to motherhood or a passage to fatherhood. Your life's just over. And everybody tells you that. Your life's over. Congratulations, you had a kid. But we don't make space for that societally and culturally to mourn that loss of identity. Now, does that mean that it's terrible and earth-shattering and world-ending? No, but we're not honoring that that's a loss. Um, that's a loss of identity. That's a loss of functioning. That's a role. Yeah. And that's a piece of identity that, that you know, being, you know, a, a young single person and then being in a marriage, that's a loss. And then being a young couple that then decides to start a family, that's another loss because there are certain freedoms that you do have to give up in order to be a parent. Um, but we yeah. don't make room for any of this stuff because we, we view, you know, valid grief is death and that's it, mm -hmm. physical death. That, that's where our empathy extends and stops physical death yeah. and that's only if it's somebody in your immediate family.
Yeah, I did. I reached. I researched him a bit when uh, for this interview, and it, it's it was so interesting. I liked his story about how it really enlightened him from the moment when he, because he when he discovered like this whole alternative grieving. Uh, he was talking to someone. I don't know. You probably heard the story, but he was in a a course or something, and he was teaching mm-hmm. about grief. And the person, like a student, said, "Like imagine uh, you should." you think losing your spouse is, is difficult. Imagine losing your ex-spouse. And that's when he was like, huh, you're right. Like, that's kind of what it clicked. He's like, you know, people don't really talk about losing their ex-spouse or their ex-girlfriend or ex-boyfriend or, or whatever they had before. And whenever Mm -hmm. you discuss like emotions like that, it's, it's more so like the narrative, like you're mentioning is, well, why do you care about your ex-girlfriend? Why do you care mm-hmm. about your ex-spouse? Like, they're gone. You should get over it, and you should move on. And if you still care about that ex-person, there's something wrong with you. Oh, and yeah. I thought that was really interesting because those types of losses are way more frequent than death. You know, like, we lose things, and we transition. We have to move Life mm-hmm. is all about gaining and losing, but yep. we don't ever like we focus so much on the gaining aspect, but not about how much we lose on a consistent basis. And then, mm-hmm. like you said, we, we wonder why we have so much like abandonment issues, and, and we're terrified, terif- terrified, sorry, yeah, terrified to uh, to lose things. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's it is very interesting the concept of disenfranchised grief and how much it actually plays a role in in all of our daily lives mm-hmm. and it goes and, and and to to carry on with that i mean in addition to you know the relationships that we lose losing jobs having to move um you know custody issues with children you know blended and split families all of these are, are we don't recognize how much loss there is and I, I think this this tangentially for me sort of ties on to the fact that the definition of trauma is starting to expand as well it's no longer the capital t that we're aware of in terms of the a score um anybody who's watching if you've not seen the a score kaiser permanente put out uh, a study in the early nine later early 90s i can't recall right off the bat um that sort of looks at what's called adverse childhood experiences um what we found is that statistically the higher your a score the higher you are to experience chronic long-term illness so one of the things that i learned working hospice is that 82 percent of us will die from a chronic disease and if you have an ACE score of seven or more, statistically, that knocks off about 20 years from your life expectancy. So for me, I felt kind of bad because I would be working with my hospice nurses who a lot of them typically were either at the beginning of their career or they were sort of towards the end looking for retirement. And they would be in their early 60s and we would get a patient who would be 60, 61, 62. And they would be like, my God, this person is young. Because in terms of home health and hospice, that is very young. Um, the youngest person I ever had on my hospice caseload was 19. Uh, the oldest person I ever had was 102. Um, so I've seen a, a wide stretch of, of life. And so when we, we don't make allowances for what the breadth of death and loss can look like, that really leaves us in a lurch because we're used to seeing in these very physical, tangible ways, um, especially in terms of, like I said, physical death. That seems to be the most palatable I hate, I hate to even use that word, but really that's the only kind of death like, and loss that's acceptable is when there is a physical death. 
but we don't talk about the loss of the relationships, the loss of children, the loss of identity, the loss of pets, the loss of any kind of relationship. Um, and we wonder why we are such an emotionally charged and, you know, Shit. full of grief nation. And it's because we're experiencing these losses on the daily, but we're told that they're not legitimate. Um, we're, we're actively told it's not that bad. It's not that big a deal. You don't need to be upset. I mean, think about like when celebrities die. I mean, uh, Anthony Bourdain, Kate Spade, um, mm -hmm. Robin Williams, you know, when these celebrity suicides happened, there were a lot of people who were telling others, you know, this isn't someone you knew personally. You're not allowed to mourn that. I mean, it's the same thing that I've seen happen with coworkers. I mean, this is something that I had to deal with even in my home health agency where, you know, I, for the handful of families that really did bring me in as a social worker and did work with me, a lot of people are kind of iffy on what social work is, especially at beginning and end of life, because at beginning of life, they think I'm there to take away their children and at end of life, they think I'm there to put their loved ones in a facility. And that's not the case. Um, I actually, that runs counter to, to what I believe. Um, for me personally, I don't believe that children should be removed from homes unless there is an absolute clear and present danger and to the safety of the child. Because working with kids in the system, a lot more damage gets done sometimes by trying to disrupt these family systems instead of trying to repair them in place. Um, and so seeing all these different kinds of losses that, that we can encounter it, it, part of me is like, I have to remind myself, it's like, Alistair, not everybody's done the reading, not everybody has the education, which is why we do things like this. This is why we sit and we have these conversations so we can make this information more accessible. Um, but we have just so much loss as a country that we are carrying that we're not acknowledging on so many different levels. Um, but again, I think the most tangible one when it comes to disenfranchised grief is really looking at what's happening with the protests that have been happening the last several weeks. And this is by no means an attempt to white explain black pain and black lives and to try to make sense of, of what they are experiencing. Because as a white man, that's something that I personally do not experience. I can experience my own forms of disenfranchised grief in terms of being told like you know having to mourn aspects of my femininity and my masculinity and my transition you know having to let go of having to let go not really but having to let go of being emotional of having emotional fluidity being able to express it and that being met with men don't cry men don't talk about shit men don't do xyz because if you think about it masculinity is defined by nothing but negatives um, and I feel that this is sort of the same for whiteness as well, because we define ourselves by what we are not. We, we define ourselves by rejection. Um, and when we are looking at a group of people and at a system that encourages us to look at it this way, to define ourselves by those negatives, to not see any positives, how could something positive ever come out of that? Like, how could we ever have a productive conversation when all we do is talk about what we are not? instead of yeah. what we are, what we have, what we do have. And again, that's not a dog whistle for white nationalism either. Um, it's more of investigating why is it that we feel the need in these certain dominant groups to define ourselves not by the positive traits that we can you know, encompass in ourselves and that we can share and positive character aspects and, and you know, the love and the joy that we can bring. Because one of the things that I've been seeing a lot when I'm you know, consuming varieties of media is that and again, this is just one perspective, um, but I think that 
one of the resounding messages that I've been getting, you know, from watching more black entertainment, more um, black educators, more black content creators, is that a lot of where they're coming from is very much a love-based culture. We love being black. We love who we are. Like there's so much self-love and self-pride. And when I look at white people, it is nothing but self-loathing and separation. Like we just want to push ourselves as far away from other as possible because that's where we deem our superiority. Um, and we're not really even acknowledging the loss that we're creating in ourselves by doing that. Like, again, if you, if all you ever do is define yourself by, you know, the things that you lack and the things that you reject, what positive soil does that give you to grow something productive? It, it doesn't. I mean, it's, it's caustic. It's acidic. I mean, if you want to go back to like a biology metaphor, you, you, you know, you've got too many nitrates in the soil, it's going to burn up the roots. Um, and so if you're not willing to have a conversation about, okay, so how do we switch this from this rejection, from this negativity, from this disenfranchisement? How do we move towards loving people? How do we move towards embracing them? And I feel like one of the conversations that we don't have often enough as practitioners, really, really and truly, and this kind of got me in lowercase t trouble in grad school because I was that guy. Um, we always talk about unconditional positive regard. And Joelle, this is something that you might have heard a lot about when you were in grad school. Unconditional positive regard. You know, we always meet persons like the person where they're at, but how yes. often do we actually do that? Because so many of our biases, experiential blindness, all of these things are, are coloring um, the way that we are able to connect and understand each other. Unconditional positive regard to me is another form of love. Um, it's more in like the agape sense of like the universal, like divine love. That doesn't mean that I'm crossing boundaries with my patients or that I am doing anything inappropriate. It's my first patient that ever transferred from home health to hospice. I would meet with uh, her daughter every Monday morning and have a cup of coffee and a slice of pumpkin bread or a cookie or something and sit at her table and, and be a part of that and work through that preemptive grief and be brought into this family as a member because her and her husband did not have children um, and, and opted not to. And so I found myself a lot of times because of my age taking on this faux kin role, but I, I even hesitate to call it faux because for me, kinship has really expanded doing this work because it really is an emotional commitment and an emotional relationship with another person to show up and be there during those really hard times. And one of the consistent refrains that I heard from caregivers across the board is, I feel so guilty because I just want this to be over. And that's a form of disenfranchised grief as well, because when people are dealing with loved ones that you know are dealing with Alzheimer's, dementia, traumatic brain injuries, when there's been an alteration in the person that we know and we love, but they're not physically dead, that's an emotional death, but we don't have a process of mourning that. Um, a lot of people who are adult caregivers that are dealing with parents that are cognitively compromised are told, well, this is just your parent and you need to deal with it which is the least helpful thing that anybody can be told in that situation. And so I know I'm getting kind of like all over the place, but I mean, really, it's just trying to figure out how do we, how do we validate grief? How do we make it real? How do we make it legible? And how do we push it beyond our current understanding of it? Because everything is about the physical death and about the person most immediately related to you. And then again, if you work a white collar job, you get three days bereavement and you're supposed to show up back to work and be fine. Like, how like you could have just lost your spouse your brother your sister your loved one 
talk about somebody being divorced, your ex-spouse, that, you know, if you had children together, that's the parent of your child. Granted, the relationship might not have been enough that it was one where, you know, the marriage was sustainable and no judgment in making those calls because sometimes things don't work out and it's not anybody's fault. But that's still a loss. That was still a major player in your life. But because it's not in this readily accessible category that we find palatable and socially acceptable, we're very quick to reject it. Yeah. Uh, and, and we, we want to push that away because it makes us extraordinarily uncomfortable. And it all comes back to discomfort and fragility and feelings. And, oh, this is, I don't know how I feel about this. And it makes me uncomfortable. Your sadness makes me uncomfortable because it means I have to face my sadness and my grief. And a lot of our push against other people typically has to do with something in ourselves that we are not comfortable with. This is something that I've found in nine times out of 10 in situations where I personally come across somebody that either rubs me the wrong way, ruffles my feathers, or something that just gnaws at me. I'm able to realize because it's something about them that I'm projecting about myself that I don't particularly like, but here's the closest available target. And so having that understanding of, of where that's coming from and then expanding that to the grief model we're so uncomfortable with grief because we do not mourn. So people hold on to these emotions and they lash out and we end up, you know, having people with substance use issues or people who withdraw and sometimes people who also take their own lives because they want to be with their loved ones because we don't have emotional support. And what are we supposed to do in a country that is so full of death, loss, and mourning, or grieving, I should say, but there is no mourning? We're missing that last piece. Like, how are we supposed to get any kind of emotional resolution when we have no system and no ritual in place that acknowledges that, yeah, that's a real loss. And loss is also subjective, which is something we also don't like. We want things that are scientific, black and white, evidence-based. We want all of these things. But the reality is that the human experience is so much more multiplicitous than that. It goes beyond hard numbers. It goes beyond data. It goes beyond research. And while I am all for academia and having, you know, things be validated by research, academia is also overrun with wrinkly old white guys that haven't really changed the paradigm in a very long time. And for some reason, that's still the system that we're defaulting to when that level of understanding and that level of logic no longer serves the, like, the world population. I mean, we're still running off of grief models from the 40s, 50s, and 60s. Like, we have not really updated the grief process at all. At all. Yeah. So let's, uh, let's dissect and, and uh, process all of that. Um, Joelle, what, do you have anything that you wanted to pick out from any of that? Well, I love the fact that you touched on um, just loss as a, a subjective because mm -hmm. I feel like when I work with clients, like that's something that is hard for me um, because they come in and they think that their loss is smaller mm -hmm. than others. So they don't feel comfortable sharing it with me. And I'm then finally, angry. after weeks of getting to know them and they might give a little bit to me, mm -hmm. um, you know, it, it is so subjective. And I think people don't, like you said, accept that or are it's still hard for us due to our own fragility and just our own stuff with not accepting our own grief. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I think just touching on that a little more. Um, yeah. I and, mean, I, and I wish like the, like you said, like the grief model would, would change. I, I wish people would 
focus more on kind of updating that model. Yeah. I mean, the, the Kubler-Ross model is the one that we're all most familiar with. Um, it mm -hmm. was created by a Swiss-American psychiatrist named Dr. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, and that's where our five stages come from. Yeah. And everybody knows that those five stages are not linear. Um, they sort of bounce around. A less known about model was actually, um, it was a, a partnership between um, Bowlby, who's known, more known for um, systems attachment, things like that, and another uh, lesser known psychiatrist at the time, where basically he actually laid out eight stages of grief, but they're, they're paired into four stages, and, and in much to the Bowlby style, it's this versus this. And a lot of it is just the idea of integration. Yeah. And how do we move from being in that place of grief to integrating our grief? And for whatever reason, that was not a particularly popular model. Again, super old and outdated. Toolbox approach is what I love. I take what you want, leave what you don't need, and what's not effective anymore. And I feel like the accidental and un unconscious mistake that we've made is that by clinging to the Kubler-Ross model, okay, these are the five emotions I'm supposed to experience, I'm supposed to go through them in these stages, and then it's just supposed to be gone. Whereas Bowlby's model actually posits that grief never actually goes away. Right. Um, that feeling, that loss is never really gone because that is a piece of you. I mean, and, and to go a step further, um, to a certain extent, we experience ego death and all of this. I mean, it's very fragmented. It's not like people who, you know, use psychedelics that experience that ego death to have that oneness with everything, um, which is a whole other interesting concept in and of itself. Um, mm -hmm. But really what we're dealing with is not only death of others, but death of self and death of self-identity. And to me, that ties back to this paradox that I have around what I call American individualism, which is we're raised with this idea that we are all unique, we are all special, we all have something to bring to the table. But when it comes to collective action, collective emotion, collective anything, we immediately throw our hands up and say, well, I'm just one person. What am I supposed to do? When we've been fed all of this individual power on a base level, but when it comes to collectivity and collective action, collective change, we're all like, well, I'm just one person and there's nothing I can do. And that's a paradox that I have yet to really wrap my head around, but I see it more and more and more. And I think it's interesting now that we're sort of beginning, I would like to hope and believe we're beginning to override that because we are seeing sustained collective action in the streets. We're seeing sustained collective action in legislature. We're seeing sustained collective action in the government level. Um, here in Virginia, actually, Governor Northam it was either yesterday or the day before, actually, it was making the proposition for Juneteenth to be a paid holiday in the state of Virginia, and there's push for that to be a national holiday as well. So this is sustained movement, um, and I think that people are catching on that, you know, we can keep talking about this. We can keep having this conversation. It's a matter of being persistent about it, and part of it does have to do with other kinds of disenfranchisement, economic, social, uh, social justice, our court systems, all of that disenfranchisement is everywhere um, when it comes to grief i think that where it plays out the most is when it is like i said it's it's just that socially unacceptable piece and because it's so subjective what's socially acceptable for me might be socially acceptable in a different way for you or for joelle or for you know joe schmo off the street like it's different and because it's it's subjective and not objective 
that makes us very uncomfortable because again, going back to, you know, ye old archaic and draconian mental health, it, you know, we had a lot of British white guys that were armchairing a lot of theories about what grief is supposed to look like. And if it doesn't fit that white mourning model that was established 70, 80 years ago, uh, it's not valid. It's not real. And that's why I also call disenfranchised grief invalidated grief because we're not honoring that that's a real loss. Right. And, and in, in my personal practice, when I've come across, because there have been times I will own where I have worked with somebody that they've experienced, you know, a kind of loss that I personally, like with my unprofessional hat on, just being a human, because at the end of the day, as practitioners and clinicians, we are human beings underneath it all. There have been times where I've been like, I, this doesn't make any sense to me at all. It really doesn't. Like, why? Why? And then I have to remind myself that it's my job, you know, as a medical social worker in this case, to come in and support that person. It doesn't matter what my emotional reality is. It matters what my patient's emotional reality is. And if they're in emotional distress over this, then that's something that I need to be paying attention to and not passing a judgment call. Right. Cool. Well, thank you. That, I, I think there's a lot in here. I don't want to push it too much. Um, and uh, that was a lot of good information. I, I think that you covered disenfranchised grief very well and uh, what it really means in the core level. So yeah, I learned a lot. <laughs> so yeah. thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. And I mean, if you've got any other questions, please ask away. I recognize I am a little on the verbose side. This is something I'm super passionate about. So y'all caught me on something that kind of lights me up a little bit. No, that's great. That's great. There's, we could definitely have more conversations about it. Um, but I think, I think we're past 45 minutes and I, I try to keep it around that time. Yep. Um, but yeah, thank you for, for the interview and thank you for, for, for doing this and teaching us. Of course, okay. and thank you for having me on. I'm I'm happy to have these discussions, and you know, whoever is watching, and either both both of you as well. If you've got more follow up questions, please feel free reach out, ask me. Um, yeah. This is something that I feel like now more than ever because of the social unrest that we're seeing. People keep asking, you know, me, like you know, my white friends, my white family, like, why is this happening? I don't, I don't. You know, there's that MLK quote that everybody goes back to that writing is the language of the unheard, and I would say that writing is the language of unheard grief and unheard pain yeah uh, and that's the way that we're making it legible in more secular circles because we don't have a formal grieving process for the kind of grief that marginalized communities are experiencing whether you be black brown lgbtq um, asian american whatever if you're non-white and you have some kind of intersectional identity society does not make room for you to process the losses that you experience in that space and so how do we expand the, that, that definition of grief? How do we dis like, how do we dis disenfranchise grief? Mm -hmm. And how do we open it up to be a more holistic experience that we really love people through and accept even if we don't understand it? Yeah, cool. All right, man, well, thanks. We'll do this again. No Definitely. problem. I, I hope you guys have a good rest of your day and thanks for me having too. me on. Yeah, me too. Thank you. Yep. Bye. Bye. Bye.